it's not entirely clear why I've been asked to comment on Judd's terrific paper. Uh, it is, after all, uh, a paper that operates within, broadly speaking, originalism, and it is about natural law and about freedom of speech. I am more or less against all three of those things. Um, so um, I will do the best I can. Uh, let me just repeat, the paper is genuinely terrific, uh, not only in terms of um, historical insight, but the range of sources that Judd draws on, rather than just mining the same sources that one sees in the same kinds of things, whether it be about the First Amendment or a constitutional founding period in general, is very impressive. I learned a huge amount. When I read the paper for the first time, my first reaction was, who are the adversaries? That is, what are the debates here? Who's the enemy? What are the adversaries? Uh, who are you arguing against, if anyone? Uh, then on second reading, I had some answers to that. And let me just suggest four different debates or four different contrasts that one can imagine this paper engaged in. So one would be, uh, number one, um, Campbell versus those who have both a strong natural law view and a strong view about the protections of the First Amendment. That is, one understanding of what this paper does is it says, from a natural law perspective, one must understand the founding era views about the relationship between natural law and common law. And if one understands that natural law was understood to be uh, engaged with or embedded in important ways in the common law, then many of the restrictions well accepted within the common law at the time would have been understood even under a natural law conception of freedom of speech. Now, um, one way to disagree with that is to say, yes, there was a natural law understanding of freedom of speech, but the natural law understanding of freedom of speech generates or generated a very strong understanding of that freedom as against the kinds of restrictions that might have been common in the 18th and even 19th centuries. So um, by drawing heavily on common common law restrictions and on the way in which restrictions in the name of the public interest were accepted and acceptable. It might be that there is a debate here be uh, between you and those from a natural law perspective who have a, to put it in more modern terms, a substantially more robust view about the strength of the protection that the First Amendment offers as against potentially competing interests. So second debate or second contrast, Campbell versus those who have, let us say, an originalist single value theory about freedom of speech. So one of the things that we see in the philosophical or political free speech literature are some number of theorists and some number of perspectives that we can describe as single value theories. So there are those who would say the First Amendment and freedom of speech is 
all and only about democracy and democratic decision making and so on. Uh, the view that, to oversimplify, we might associate with Alexander Micklejohn. There are also those who say that the First Amendment is all and only about truth and truth seeking and so on. Uh, it is a view that dates in a way back to John Milton in the Areopagitica, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a fair fight with falsehood, but we now more commonly associate it with John Stuart Mill. Uh, third, we could say that there is a view, a single value view that free speech and the First Amendment are all about liberty or autonomy or personal self-expression or self-realization or something of that sort. If we focus on hearers and receipt of information, a view that we associate with the philosopher uh, Thomas Scanlon. Uh, if we focus on speakers, we might uh, associate the view uh, with the late Ed Baker. But all of these are more or less modern, more or less single value theories. Then the question is, if as Judd says, one of the things that emerges from the founding era debates and documents is support for various different understandings of why free speech is a good thing, why freedom of the press is a good thing, then one way of understanding what you've extracted from the historical sources is a multi-valued uh, theory about um, freedom of speech, a multi-valued theory about the First Amendment. So then, uh, insofar as you have an adversary, the adversary would be someone who is both an originalist and has a single value theory. I'm not sure that there, is, there are any actual occupants of that category. So uh, it would be interesting to know who the adversary is here. Third, um, Campbell versus Galley. Galley, as in W.B. Galley, essentially contested concepts or maybe it's Campbell against Wittgenstein or something of that variety. That is, an important theme in this paper is to draw on Rawlsian ideas of the distinction between concept and conception, or it's put the same idea in somewhat different terms between meaning and application. But there is certainly a strand of philosophy, perhaps most commonly, if I may oversimplify, associated with Wittgenstein that would, want, that would resist that, that would want to say something to dramatically oversimplify. Meanings come out of applications. And the idea that there are meanings that exist or hover above the applications or concepts that hover above the applications and can be identified without respect to the applications is at the very least controversial. Uh, W.B. Galley essentially contested concepts is the one who relates most specifically to it, but all of these perspectives are ones that might emphasize the primacy of the particular. And indeed in modern constitutional thinking, um, although with less philosophical baggage, Cass Sunstein's views about the primacy of the particular uh, and so on might at least have some affinity with this. So there is at least a question about, the, uh, about whether maybe you want to devote a little bit more attention to the fact that there is another side to some of these views about that. Finally, 
and a little bit more historically, uh, there is a debate between Campbell and Charles James Fox, no relation. Uh, Charles James Fox, as in Fox's Libel Act of 1792. So it turns out that the principal issue in the Zenger trial of 1735 was largely the question of who gets to decide whether something is libelous. It wasn't so much about freedom of speech as such. It wasn't so much about freedom of thought or freedom <coughs> of opinion. It was about should the determination of whether a publication is or is not libelous be made by judge or jury. One of the reasons that Zenger won is that his lawyer, Alex, uh, Andrew Hamilton, persuaded the jury that they had far more power than the instructions of the judge actually gave to them. That was a huge issue throughout the 18th century. Fox's Libel Act in the UK in 1792 gave the power, or regave the power, depending on one's uh, views, back to the jury, gave the jury the power to issue a general verdict. That was considered an enormous advance in terms of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But why this is a debate is that almost all of this debate was about jury power, Almost all of this debate was about the jury as a bulwark against tyranny. Very little of it was about natural rights. A great deal of it was about, uh, to put it in your terms, perhaps uh, positive rights or political rights, or to put it in Ronald Dworkin's terms, policy rather than principle. So there is at least a strand that is taking place at more or less the same time that views freedom of speech largely as one weapon in a political conflict about not only judge and jury, but more broadly about occupying powers versus colonial powers or the king versus colonial powers and so on. And that is almost all a policy debate rather than a natural rights debate. Indeed, once we move up to 1798 and the Sedition Act of 1798 and the debates about the Sedition Act of 98, and I will, 1798, and I'll stop with this, two interesting things about the Sedition Act of 1798. One, despite the fact that it was controversial for other reasons, it gave the power of a general verdict back to the jury. So the battle that Zenger had waged was in fact treated as one by the time we get to 1798. The other is that much of the controversy about the Sedition Act of 1798 was about federal versus state power rather than natural rights to speech or thinking or opinion. And whether those arguments are right or wrong, at least it suggests that there is a strong policy, positive rights strand of argument going on at the same time that much of the natural rights uh, and natural law argument is going on. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, so this is very helpful, Fred. Thanks. Uh, so I just have two uh, quick comments. So one is um, uh, Fred identifies on the second of his uh, distinctions that there might be a multi-value multi theory that I've identified. I want to push back a bit and just say um, it's not that it's value less, but rather that the recognition is of a structure of decision 
It's a framework for decision. And so uh, it's multi-value in the sense that, sure, we can bring multiple values to it, uh, but it's not multi-value in the sense that the First Amendment itself tells us what the values are. So the First Amendment itself, as a natural rights provision, tells us speech can be regulated in the public interest. Then it's up for us to know what that is. So obviously one of the things that that is is having a vibrant Republican government. Clearly that is a value that the founders uh, care about when they debate about the freedom of speech. My point is that is not itself baked into the meaning of speech as a natural right. Now it may be undergirding the positive law protections for speech. Uh, so to the extent that the freedom of speech had become a fundamental positive right, uh, that fundamental positive right has some undergirding uh, political value behind it. Um, uh, the second uh, point that I wanted to make was on the last, which is, um, uh, so Fred is talking about a policy debate rather than a natural rights debate. I, I know very little about modern natural law and what modern natural law means and how we go about determining modern natural law. As I understand founding era natural rights discourse, there is not a distinction between a policy debate and a discussion about natural rights. Because what it means to have a natural right is to have a right that is limitable only in the public interest. What it means to have uh, a public interest limitation itself calls for policy analysis. And so that's exactly what we see Republicans doing uh, when they contest federal power. They say, no, 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 if we allow for the federal government to prosecute these people for sedition, sure, they may have crossed the line from liberty into license, uh, but this will chill useful speech. It will allow the government uh, to go too far, and that ends up being a power of government uh, that is counterproductive in serving the public interest, even if in particular cases it might be able to. So I, d I don't see there as being a clear line uh, between those.